but I don't know. I I actually still have some audiobooks that I need to. I have like on contradiction that I still need to read. Or like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That won't take too long either. No. That's nice. No. I mean, that's why I, I, I did Neuromancer because like one, it's a classic science fiction book that I have not read yet. Two, I follow William Gibson on Twitter. And three, when I saw it on YouTube, it says read by William Gibson. And I'm like, read by the author? I'm in. Like, that's always <laughs> a good sign. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I wish that On Contradiction was read by the author. <laughs> <laughs> well, who do you know Me who too. it's read by? Because sometimes those can be really wild. Like, because I there's, I think it's on um, Amazon's audiobook service. There, uh-huh. their version of like what is to be done or State and Revolution. It's one of mm-hmm. the, the the main Lenin texts is like read by Chris Matthews. <laughs> Oh really? That's so, <laughs> so weird. Yeah, yeah, no, it's state and revolution. <laughs> yeah. That's so fucking odd. I don't know I if he's like my... one of those like, you know, X trots or something and that's right, why right. or something, but <laughs> on uh on practicing contradiction is read by Matt Bates. Okay. I don't know okay. who that is. Well, I I, I I usually just listen to the Marxist texts uh that the guy on the Socialism for All channel reads because he mm-hmm. also annotates them and you know, like any internet Marxist, I don't always agree with him, but he sure. does know a lot of things that I don't know. So, yeah, good, good source of info. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have historical context for that stuff. It's always really mm-hmm. important when you want to like frame the type of language being used. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why these S's are written as F's <laughs> because the text <laughs> oh, yeah. is from 1821. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I always struggle with audiobooks because, like, it's so easy for if my bra- if I'm not being visually stimulated mm-hmm. for my brain to just be like seek out something else and then I gloss over what I'm listening well, to. <laughs> and maybe it was just the fact that that the um well no I guess I was I was thinking of, um when I was listening to Imperialism the final stage of capitalism uh I just struggled like I really feel like since that has so much like economics and numbers in it that I actually really do need to look at it in the book form because listening to it in the audiobook form was not as enlightening as I had hoped it would be. Yeah, you know, that's like me listening to the audiobook of the governance of China and just being like, say a relatively prosperous country in all respects again, <laughs> motherfucker. Say it one more time. <laughs> well, that one is also because it's like it's a collection of speeches over multiple years. Right. So it's it would be less repetitive if you they were spaced out in like the the order in which they were given but when you cram them all in one book you're just like oh we're, we're playing the hits again i see yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is classic. basically the same speech again <laughs> it's like classic rock but for marxists that's right <laughs> yeah that was cashmere by led zeppelin and this is immigrant song by led zeppelin <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Stuff 
Savage, everybody, your your number one audiobook review podcast. That's right. <laughs> We're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. It goes a very long way. If you're not in the Discord already, what are you doing, you, you silly goose? Get in there. Uh, if you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon, and we will get them to you ASAP. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help. Apple Podcasts is the conventional wisdom, but uh, you could write it on a mouse pad in the public library. And before I forget, my name's John. <laughs> oh, I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And yeah. Uh, yeah, John doesn't get to go into his normal, and we're... Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> no, I already did it all. Yeah, so uh, we're just going to go right into our first follow-up, where we're going to be talking about the Korean trucker strike, which we had been covering for the past two episodes. And unfortunately... Uh, as we've talked about so much of the state repression that's been happening there, uh, the state did kind of crush this uh, workers' strike, and they were forced to end their strike with basically no victories. Yeah, uh, I tried to front load the bad news in this episode. Um, yeah, unfortunately, despite, you know, I think pretty courageous resistance to the attempts to weaponize the law against the trucker strike in South Korea. The workers, a majority of the workers did vote um, on Friday the 9th uh, to end the strike after 16 days and continue and actually continuing escalating repression. This, the vote came a day after the government expanded its back to work order for the truckers from just covering the 350 cement truck drivers who were on strike to also cover steel and petrochemical carriers. Again, the, the, um, back to work order carried with it, the threat of revocation of their driving license, followed by the threat of, of imprisonment and massive fines. So this was not like just the government being like, hey, <laughs> you have to go well, back to work. Like this is real, real penalties they were being threatened with here. Yeah, because I mean, when, when it comes to fines, I mean, that's kind of what a strike fund is for, why you're part of a union to make sure that if in case you need to really hold out, you know, you might have some recourse against that, but to say that you wouldn't ever be able to drive again or or even like a temporary revoking of your license, like even if I, I just and, and also the pr- going to jail for being on strike. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's like going to jail for having a debt. Yeah. And, and it's it's not as if we're saying, you know, that drivers should never that workers should never risk breaking the law. We certainly are actually, you know. Advocating the opposite of that. But it's ultimately a democratic decision. And when 62% of the workers voted that it was no longer the, you know, the best idea for them to continue striking in the face of, of escalating uh, repression from the state, uh, you know, that's, the, that's the democratic decision by a majority of the workers. And so uh, the drivers have decided to go back to work. Um, right. Well, and of course, they didn't do it for no reason. I mean, they held out for as, as long as they could, but they were not just facing like direct repression, but also the state acting through the media in order to right. repeatedly attack the drivers and force public support down. And additionally, uh, after the previous strike earlier this year, some of the major companies developed contingency plans. So they had stockpiled goods, scab Drivers lined up in order to continue operations in order to kind of, you know, limit the impact that this strike had. And as much as we would have liked to have seen the drivers continue, you know, it's not for us to say that, like, these material conditions that they're facing are, you know, not worthy of of the kind of consideration that they took. 
I think yeah. that maybe it kind of lends itself to the lesson of using the momentum you have at the time that you originally have it. Because if they mm. like not to, and I this is not like a serious critique. Because I mean, these workers aren't know more about what's going on than I do. But it seems that if maybe instead, similar to like the uh, the farmer strike in in India when they were protesting and they said they were going to stay on on uh, stay protesting until the stri- until the laws were actually repealed. Or in that case, you know, if they stayed on strike until the government because the government made a promise and then they didn't keep it. Right. Uh, if you know they had stayed on strike and kept that momentum going at that time, the companies wouldn't have had the time to like you know uh, what do you call it R- rally their forces and make sure that they could repress the strike later, which they did and it has led to this right and brace themselves against the interruption. Yeah, and and uh, obviously we don't want to speculate, but I have actually seen in, in some of the research, you know, just reading various articles about this strike that have interviewed various drivers, I have actually seen that critique from some of the members of the Trucker Solidarity Union uh, that they – in after, after seeing how the companies had prepared and the, the government became more willing to escalate this repression that – yeah, exactly that, that maybe it would have been a better idea to continue the, the strike earlier this year until rather than getting a promise to extend the the build, they actually like, OK, great. That's a great promise. And we'll accept your promise after you actually pass the law. Well, yeah. So it reminds me of Canada, too, in that yeah. situation where they got repressed with the exact same sort of thing. And it reminds me of a, a thing we say a lot on this show, which is when we see stories about workers who go back to work with a promise, um, which is that, like, you know, you got to get it in writing. It needs yeah. to be in the contract before you're willing to act like you have it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the strike did. I and it's it's not that the strike didn't cause damages. Like they, they, there there mm-hmm. were estimates in the press that that just being on strike for just over two weeks uh, cost some of these companies approximately two point seven billion dollars. But that was not enough due to the preparations made by these major companies to get South Korea's ruling class to pressure President Yoon to stop the repression and agree to negotiate with the drivers. And unfortunately, the fallout from this is not just that the drivers have been forced to end their strike, but that because of the failure of the strike, the drivers are now returning to the negotiating table in a much weaker position. Uh, the Because again, at the end of the previous strike earlier this year, they had gotten a promise, which of course was not fulfilled, uh, for the government to consider extending the minimum safe rates, basically a minimum wage, for these drivers indefinitely. And then the government rene- uh, like went back on that promise and instead said, oh, well, we'll extend it for three years. Well, now after this strike, the government is saying that that's even off the table and they want to go back to negotiating from a blank slate. So uh, and obviously the, the the failure of the strike puts the union in a much weaker negotiating position. So, uh, yeah, this is – unfortunately, there is not – I don't have like a silver lining to this story. This This mm-hmm. just sucks because like – and I don't want to be overly critical of the union either because it's not like the union leadership abandoned the workers or anything like they were they were out there. They were ready to be militant. And I'm I'm sure there will be there and there are and are at right now a lot of discussions going on within the union, I'm sure, on on how to learn from this and make strikes better in the future. It It, it just I think one of the takeaways, though, from this, at least for me was when we take this in like the context, not just in this strike specifically, but what mm-hmm. we've seen around the 
the world really, especially like focused on the highly developed, you know, capitalist imperial core countries. And also of course the countries that are currently occupied by the United States, like South Korea or even, you know, Japan, even some parts of Europe Mm -hmm. that we have seen so many countries put more and more and more legal restrictions on striking to make the legal avenues available for workers narrower and narrower and narrower. And and I think that that is clearly a global issue since the rise of, you know, neoliberalism as the particular form of capitalism dominant in the imperial core. And it, it sets up this awful situation where you have, Basically, you can't do the old kind of strikes that workers used to do at the turn of the 20th century where a picket line was a physical blockade of a plant. Now, in most imperial core countries, you can't do that because it's considered interfering with the the company's property and you'll be arrested. Uh, So the only real way for most unions in these countries to to actually make strikes effective is to – create a long-term withdrawal of purely labor rather than labor and, you know, raw materials because it can't physically blockade the raw materials. The problem there is that neoliberalism's tactics of enforced artificial austerity automatically enlarge the reserve army of labor of the unemployed Mm -hmm. because, again, neoliberalism specifically targets not having full employment so that there is always this downward pressure on wages, which has always been a feature of capitalism, but it's, re- it's, it's at the fore with neoliberalism, and, be- and particularly for this reason. Because always having so many folks in desperate straits makes it much, much harder to have a, a true cutoff of labor from so many different companies. And that, that really makes it so much harder for workers to have leverage. And when you combine that with the willingness of reactionary capitalist leaders like President Yoon in South Korea and President Biden here in in the United States and their willingness to rule strikes illegal and impose forced labor on workers, all of this just piles up to make like using – doing strikes within the legal avenues provided for unions just so incredibly difficult. Yeah. Right. Well, and relevant to the workers not being allowed to physically, you know, bar entry to the building because they'll be arrested for interfering with company property. We see that kind of selective enforcement because when the companies turn around and illegally bust unions, exactly. they often face a tiny little slap on the wrist OSHA fine at absolute maximum. And we see this all the time with Starbucks, but we're also going to be following up to talk about how Apple has broken the law with union busting in Atlanta and how we're seeing these Starbucks-style illegal union-busting tactics spreading to a lot of different industries during this year. Yeah, so this article is going to be, or this this segment is going to be kind of citing another piece that Josh Idelson of Bloomberg uh, put out on uh, Monday, December 5th, where the NLRB hit Apple with a ruling that uh, their anti-union campaign against workers in the Apple store in the Cumberland Mall in Atlanta was very illegal for a couple different reasons. The workers who were organizing with the CWA had to withdraw their petition back in May, a week before their election, because the company had been using really aggressive tactics like uh, captive audience meetings and and worker intimidation, saying that that unionizing was going to be – what's the word? Futile. Um, yeah, it would be futile as as though, like, it doesn't matter. We're not going to negotiate with the union. The same kind of thing that, um, that, what's the motherfucker from Starbucks? Howard Schultz. 
that that Howard Schultz did in that one press release that he actually got in trouble for, where he said, uh, we're never going to work with the union. And that's kind of what uh, Apple said during this union drive. I thought you were going to say, who's the motherfucker from Star Trek who said resistance is futile? (laughs) 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 That's the Borg, I think. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I feel like we're were you know being unfair to the Borg by comparing them to Howard Schultz? I mean, that's- yeah, sure, <laughs> but, but yeah, on this. So, in response to the NLRB's ruling, uh, the CWA put out a statement saying, "Quote: Apple executives think the rules don't apply to them. Holding an illegal forced captive audience meeting is not only union busting, but an example of psychological warfare." We commend the NLRB for recognizing captive audience meetings for exactly what they are, a direct violation of labor rights, end quote, Uh, which I got to say, good statement, because rarely do we see a major union, uh, you know, go, I think, go into that level of detail on because like, yeah, that is what captive audience meetings are. They are literally psychological warfare. They are a tactic designed to break the psychological commitment of workers to organizations. Right. Well, and we've already seen uh, the machinists have had to file ULPs against Apple as uh, they brought their Littler Mendelssohn run union busting campaign to St. Louis. And on Wednesday, November 16th, the IAM filed charges against the company for holding captive audience meetings, threatening workers with retaliation for organizing and claiming that unionizing would be futile. The union was forced to withdraw its petition for an election and regroup in the face of the harassment of workers by Apple. And a store in NYC was also forced to delay their election due to these tactics as well so it's not like they're just kind of trying this out to see if it works in one spot this is now like an embedded play in the playbook right well especially littler mendelson is really well known for using their captive audience meetings and i'm glad that the nlrb is finally saying some finally actually saying that like captive audience meetings are union busting and should mm-hmm. be illegal because it has been so many years we i went through my first union busting campaign with like massive amounts of captive audience meetings in what 2015 and i'm sure mm-hmm. they were happening long before that too yeah absolutely one thing though that i just wanted to highlight to kind of connect these two stories the the story of the the korean trucker strike and then this the, the apple getting nailed for union busting mm-hmm. is i think both of them emphasize like the need for really everybody involved in the labor movement, union leadership especially, but, I mean, commentators, everybody who's focused on this, to be thinking constantly about new tactics that we need to be developing because of the prevalence of this level of willing lawbreaking by companies and the fact that the enforcement arms uh, are purposefully set up in a way that they have no real power Mm -hmm. to rein in the companies. And that actually, I think, only underlines how important it is that we support movements like Starbucks Workers United who are in the middle of all this and are trying to develop the sorts of you know various innovative new tactics that can respond to these sorts of campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Doing the mental math in my head real quick, I'm actually thinking back. It was actually 2013, 2014, so even, even before 2015, but still yeah, anyway. Well- well, and, it, and on the note of enforcement arms being basically useless, let's talk about a story that we talked about previously, which is one you may remember for how utterly deranged it was. This is the Packer Sanitation Services story, the cleaning company that was caught using kids as young as 14 to clean slaughterhouse kill floors and extremely dangerous equipment uh, using very harsh chemicals and in addition just cleaning many sharp objects and machines that could either you know crush or otherwise wound you. 
And some of them came away with, expect, you know, unsurprisingly, burns and other injuries. And this week, state regulators have reached a consent order with Packers to address this situation. So on Tuesday, December 6th, NBC News reported that Packers has agreed to, quote, review and enhance its existing policies and training materials and hire a third party consultant to conduct, quote, quarterly child labor compliance training and monitor the company's compliance for three years. The company will also provide a new child labor provision in its contracts with clients and will notify the labor department as to how many employees it terminated as a result of its compliance with child labor laws. And that's a lot of words to say they didn't have to do goddamn thing. It's a lot. It's a lot of words to say uh, they're in charge of their own punishment. Right. Which is like that. (laughs) yeah (laughs) we we, we only let the police do that in this country (laughs) and big dangerous corporations and that's it like when i first read that that was the response i was like i scrolled back up to the top of the articles i was like oh well i missed the part where they like made them fire half their executives and find the mm-hmm. company a couple million dollars and that this is just the extra stuff tacked onto that. And then I was like, Oh no, this is everything. This is everything that they're being required to do. And then even required honestly feels like too harsh of a word because they get to run their own program. Yeah. Well, then yeah. it's like, what the fuck is quarterly child labor compliance training? No wrong. Fuck you. You already knew better. Everyone already knows you've always known better since you were 14 and you, you need to stop pretending like hiring some fancy company, probably run by your buddy to come in and give you training is going to help anybody. It's just fucking ridiculous on its face. Also- there's no there's no recourse or no no compensation for the children who were actually harmed in this process yeah that's the thing it's like it honestly to me so much of this quote-unquote punishment screams that the thing that the you know the u.s department of labor which handled this investigation was really concerned about was the bad press that the story generated not not the harm to any of the kids that were involved in this yeah, American yeah. companies aren't supposed to do this in America, guys. American companies yeah. do this in other poorer countries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or if you do well. it here, it's supposed to be people who can't go to the press because they don't speak English and then right. we don't have to hear about it. Right. Yeah. It's 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 awful. It's crazy. And then, then the worst part – well, this isn't the worst part, but it was one of the more annoying parts – was that then they have the gall – to in this this settlement put out a statement like this where labor department administrator michael lazari said quote this case should serve as a stark reminder for all employers that the u.s department of labor will not tolerate violations of the law especially those that put vulnerable children at risk i'm sorry dan could you read that again all i heard was (laughs) (laughs) yeah like what a stark reminder what is stark about it? The starkness of the fact that you didn't do anything? You basically rubber stamped this and set a precedent that this is okay. Let's be real. Like, yeah, yeah. I, it's this whole thing is is ridiculous. I mean, the idea that this quote unquote punishment is going to put companies on notice 
that they can't break child labor. Like this is, if anything, putting companies on notice to that they should feel free to continue to break child labor law because the worst thing that will happen to them if they get caught is they have to change up some of their internal training. Yeah, yeah, pretty nice uh, company you got there. Be a real shame if you uh, hired some underage workers and Mike Lazeri had to make you hire a consultant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm? Yeah. No, what if we make you republish your fucking worker's handbook? Yeah, like that's oh, no. literally all this is. It's a fucking joke. This punishment is nothing. Uh, uh, this the whole situation is disgusting. Like again, the fact that this is considered a punishment, if anything, that yeah, this is just the government basically saying Oh, wow, this was awkward. Uh, please don't let yourselves get caught doing this again so mm-hmm. we don't have to come back down here. That's, that's really it. Yeah, you, they, you they basically take three said, years off and then, you know, you can go back to it. But, like, do it way quieter next time. Yeah, yeah. they're basically just like your friend's negligent parent that you thought was really cool when you were a teenager but now you realize was a terrible parent who's like, do whatever you want. I just don't want to see it. Yeah. Just don't yeah. let it, just don't bring it into the house. You know, like, it's yeah. disgusting. I, mean, I, I know, like, this long time listeners will be well aware of our opinions on OSHA and the, the, the state agencies. But I just think, like, these three stories, the one through line I would have for folks is, like, don't expect the capitalist state to help the labor movement ever. <laughs> it's not its job, and it's not going to do that. So. Not when Democrats are in charge, not when there's a guy you like running a certain age. Never. Don't trust them. Yeah. Yeah. But we do have some we do, in fact, have good news oh. <laughs> in this episode. It's not all awful stuff. Uh, so we had reported last week that we were about to potentially see a long-term strike by the, the largest, uh, you know, uh, striking at the same time unit of nurses, who the, which is a really awkward way to phrase that, um, the, I guess, that we might see a strike by the 15,000 nurses in the Minnesota Nurses Association who launched the largest single nursing strike in U.S. history, I believe, earlier this year, but for an indefinite period of time instead of just a couple of days. Now, however, uh, the union has announced that the strike has been called off because they have reached a tentative agreement with the hospitals. So on Tuesday, December 6th, the MNA put out a statement about this agreement and, and that they were they were putting off the planned strike date, which would have been this Sunday, the 11th. So in the statement, the MNA explained they didn't put out all the details, but they did explain that the new contract included safe staffing requirements for hospitals for the first time in the union's history. And that had been consistently one of the biggest uh, issues that nurses, not only in Minnesota, but really across the country have been fighting for. They, they didn't have all the details, but in there they did say, quote, staffing changes won by MNA nurses in the tentative agreements will give nurses a say in how staffing levels are set and to ensure changes to staffing levels benefit nurses and patients at the bedside, end quote. Well, and all right. It also includes raises of approximately 5.5% per year, including retroactive pay increases back to when the contra- prior contract expired, which the union says are the biggest raises in 20 years. And there are also there's also new language in the deal to provide additional workplace safety protections as well. I mean, 5.5% per year is pretty good, presuming that inflation will eventually go back to normal. Who knows if that will actually happen, but assuming. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah. so uh, Chris Rubash, who's a RN and VP of the, the the Minnesota Nurses Association, said in the statement, "quote For nine long months in these negotiations, nurses have insisted that workers and patients deserve better in our hospitals. This tentative agreement is a critical step to address the chronic short staffing and other corporate healthcare." policies hurting patients and nurses at the bedside with new staffing language and fair wage increases nurses are empowered to continue the fight to protect care in our communities end quote yeah Yeah. now we'll we'll see what the rank and file view it because now this will go to the membership for a vote yeah one thing that i um, am interested in is how these strike votes are initially phrased because i mean this does remind me a little bit of the we have a tentative agreement so we're the, we're ending the strike kind of thing mm-hmm. but uh but i wonder if it was clear to, it probably was clear to the membership that there that if there a ta is signed that the strike will be called off or hopefully that language was clear but i, I now that we've talked about that particular aspect so many times i wonder if that is actually made clear to the workers but that's just a kind of a speculative question if you are in a union and you have experienced this please jump in the discord and let us know yeah i I mean i'd also be really curious to see the actual safe staffing contract language that is used i think that's going to be really critical because Mm -hmm. contracts like all legal documents the devil is in the details uh but the language that they're using to describe the contract language is pretty to the point and pretty encouraging so I don't think it's unreasonable to have some tempered optimism for this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As always, there is the potential and we'll, I think we'll see this in the strike vote uh, when hopefully we see some numbers on that, um, that, that, you know, ratification vote the, yeah, that, that, uh, bargaining team can choose to say, Hey, the strike's over and kind of undercut the, the membership, but I, but I don't know. In my when I was looking around for you know sources and stuff on this story, I didn't see a lot of that. But I, if 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 that pops up, or if there's a significant motion to reject the deal, uh, we'll definitely you know keep folks po- folks posted on that. Yeah, absolutely, including uh, I mean, uh, and speaking of keeping folks posted on what's going on, uh, University of California strike continues. Now, the postdoctoral workers and some of the researchers have ratified a new contract, but uh, as we kind of talked about last week, that has not ended the strike. I mean, this is the biggest strike in the country, which has continued this week over at the University of California, where the school administration still is refusing to come anywhere near the fair pay that the majority of the striking workers need. And in response, strikers have escalated tactics across the university system. Workers have begun carrying carrying the strike to major university donors in the fe- in the effort to encourage them to make demands against the school's administrators to negotiate in good faith in fa- in good faith with the workers are uh, on the morning of Monday December 5th last week cuz we're recording this on the 12th uh, dozens of strikers and protesters went outside the home of major donor Harry Samu Henry Samueli Samuel Henry Samueli uh, chanting, Henry, Henry, we're at your home. Get the chancellor on the phone. Yeah, which take is that Hank Salami. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I do love house calls, and I especially love them when they're associated with uh, labor demands and strikes to actually put, you know, 
the people who are in power who are funding some of these programs uh you know putting putting them on call on notice a bit you know and and there's there we have uh more examples as well yeah i mean they didn't just start taking it to donors houses but they did some even more kind of like impressive and and uh, interesting work where they they took the picket lines out on the ocean as well, forming an amphibious strike brigade in kayaks to carry their demands to Harbor Island outside of L.A., which is a private island gated off from the public where the super rich have homes. Strikers targeted the island due to the residency of billionaire mega donor Donald Bren, demanding that he pressure the school to negotiate as well, which I love. They're like, oh, yeah. they won't ferry us over to the island. We have to get in kayaks and go ourselves that's right labor unions are now turning to piracy but in the cool way in the cool way yeah yeah if you thought unions could not get cooler you should pay more attention to the uc strike yeah yeah well and you know the university is pretty pissed about this they have responded uh to the escalating tactics with what else increased repression so also on monday the seven or also on monday 17 strikers were arrested after occupying the sacramento office of the university president elias bunting one of the arrested strikers said quote uc forced their workers to escalate our actions to call attention to their unfair labor practices and unlivable wages we will not stop until we receive a fair contract end quote and you know i love it when workers phrase it like that because it's like we don't do this for no reason i don't want to break the law and sit down in the middle of a building until i get arrested i don't do this for fun yeah. you know like yeah exactly and i feel like those sorts of portrayals are even more common when it's an academic strike because mm-hmm. you know there's the the way the media like infantilizes student workers uh but yeah i mean and so we've kind of turned this it's kind of become a tale of two strikes now at this point because UAW local 5810 has actually now ratified a new contract for their workers which is about 12,000 of the 48,000 workers on strike. Uh, While there had been concerns raised, we talked about this last week when there was a tentative agreement reached, there were some concerns because the bargaining team did drop the demand for a COLA and and higher childcare benefits. However, uh, over 75% of workers in the two main groups represented by Local 5810, the postdocs and the academic researchers, did vote in favor of the new deal for the postdocs uh, just under 90 percent of workers voted in favor there was a vote on the new contract of 2988 in favor and 356 against for the academic researchers it, the votes in favor were a bit lower but were still very much in favor with just a tick under 80 percent of the workers voting in favor of the deal uh however the remainder of the workers, again, about 36,000 of the 48,000 total workers, uh, who these, these folks who are represented by local 2865 and UAW-SRU, remain on strike uh, because the university has refused to bring up their offer on compensation. And workers pointed out this week how long it's been since they got a raise because folks dug up back in the negotiations when the workers first unionized back in 1998. If you take the pay that the workers were getting then and, and adjust it for inflation now, they were actually making slightly more money mm-hmm. after their first contract than they are now making $24,000 a year. So like, while you know, 
we're more happy that the major that the workers in 5810 got contracts that the majority were happy with. It, there have been some questions raised by the sort of kind of we- the weird timing of this because again, a majority of the workers over three quarters in each group in 5810 did vote for the contract, but it raises a lot of issues of are these workers now going to be asked to cross the picket line of the right. rest of the members? And I was not able to find a clear answer to that over the last couple of days. So uh, I guess it will remain to see over this week how that plays out. Well, and I think that the comparison to the first contract is really important when we talk so often about how raises under inflation are pay cuts. And what mm-hmm. that really highlights to us is the very reality of that situation where they were technically getting paid more back in the 90s than they are now. And that is because of raises under inflation. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Well, and and even with a lot of these workers having ratified agreements, we, we're still not dealing with a small picket line here. I mean, we have 36,000 no. workers in UAW Local 2865 and UAW SRU who are still out on the picket line. They held a system-wide rally on Sunday, December 11th, featuring scholar Robin D.G. Kelly, as well as representatives from Railroad Workers Hell United yeah. and the L.A. Tenants Union. Love to see cool. things like tenants unions getting involved in the uh, intermingling and cross-pollinating with labor as well. And the rally focused on the need for the whole community to support the workers as they settle in for the long haul. We've also um, seen rank... I'm still learning. that uh, is that Robin Kelly, the author of... Yeah, who wrote Hammer and Ho. Yeah. Oh, that's a, uh, yeah. They're very great cool. speaker. Yeah, great yeah, speaker yeah. to have at your event. Yeah, no, Robert D.G. <laughs> Kelly rocks. Hell yeah. Well, and we've also seen um, activity from rank and file groups within these locals who have called to focus tactics around maximizing the leverage of withholding labor. Another thing we love to see, and more specifically, the workers have called to focus on withholding grades and exam proctoring during finals, really hit them where it hurts, and for researchers to withhold their labor during the period of grant proposal submission and reward, with grades being one of the core quote-unquote commodities sold by the school and research grants that depend on student researchers being a major source of income. The goal is to focus on these key areas to maximize the impact of the strike. And frankly, that's just good tactics. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've been pretty impressed by, by some of the analysis that I've seen, you know, some of these groups putting out. I think there's a lot of, I mean, I just think it's, it's, it emphasizes that, you know, I think there's this stereotype by folks who don't really look in at this the, with the idea. I mean, not just like this strike in particular, but just labor issues generally that like the vast majority of workers are all detached from the running of the union and don't really care and just want to get a bigger raise. But it, I don't know. I have seen a lot of different student groups with with different analyses, some of which I, I didn't necessarily agree with, but some that I, I think are like really, really, I mean, it's the sort of thing where I'm like, I'm really glad that we have something as awful as it is that Elon Musk owns it. I am glad that something like Twitter exists right now because it gives people who are involved with the labor movement a chance to see this sort of analysis that's being developed by workers in the moment who mm-hmm. are who are adapting to the response of the university in progress and making adjustments to their tactics. And so like – I, I think that's incredibly useful to be studied for, you know, folks who want to learn from 
this strike and then maybe apply it in the future. So, right. yeah, well, I, I think I, there's a lot of really good uh, rank and file energy in there and it's really good to see. Yeah, and I, I just love how big the tent that they're creating here is. Yeah. I mean, bringing in workers from Railroad Workers United who are facing like a, a whole different labor law paradigm and, and the tenants unions because like you look at the Venn diagram of tenants and workers, it's pretty close to a fucking circle. Like, you know, <laughs> right. so it's like you know, these issues are, are, are really important to everybody it's great to see that kind of cohesion yeah and uh i mean speaking of universities and strikes and worker cohesion the we've been covering the strike at the new school uh and uh they actually have gotten their tentative agreement at this point which ended the strike yeah so uh, I mean, yeah, we just did our, our interview about how academia is a racket last week. Uh, I hope our, our, our patrons enjoyed that one. That was a really fun conversation. And we talked a decent amount about the new school strike in there. And while we were talking, actually, this was on Thursday, December 8th, new school students launched an indefinite occupation of the university student center, saying that they would stay, quote, until the administration resumes pay, full health care protection, and retirement benefits to all school employees, and until the university reaches a fair contract with the part-time faculty, end quote. Which, extremely cool by the students. Like, this is the sort of faculty-student-worker solidarity that, I think we really would love to see at every academic strike, whether it's faculty showing solidarity with striking grad students, or in this case, the vice versa, students showing solidarity with striking adjunct faculty. And and so these workers were part of a new independent organization, Student Faculty Solidarity, appropriately named. Um, and they said that they were moved to launch this occupation by the moves by the new school to cut off striking adjuncts and full-time faculty who had been withholding grades in solidarity with the strikers from their pay and health care. Uh, international uh, student Emmanuel Auerbach Baidani told Teen Vogue, quote, I came to the U.S. specifically to study at the new school for its radical history, unique position, and revolutionary pedagogical approach. The way the administration has acted throughout the strike is disgraceful. It betrays the long tradition of the school and the values it stands for, end quote. Hell yeah. yeah and, I mean, and we love to see it. Uh, you, and it is interesting with an institution like this that, you know, has a quote unquote, like progressive image, progressive legacy, that the administration would not act like this, but that the people who are attracted to study at the school still do hold on to these ideals, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and I mean, the following day after the they made that statement, the union representing student workers, uh, SCNS, uh, the UAW, issued a vote of no confidence in the school's president, in new school president McBride, and the board of trustees for their anti-union tactics during the strike. Uh, just a couple of hours after the students announced the occupation, the administration hastily issued a new contract offer to the workers aiming to recover their image and short-circuit the building community ire that the school was starting to really, really feel. In the statement issued on Twitter, the school said, It is time to bring the strike to a quick end. We're taking the extraordinary step to agree to all of the union's compensation demands with the addition of an administrative service fee to compensate part-time faculty for their work outside of the classroom. 
And that sounds pretty promising, honestly. I mean, there is, uh, there are specifically, they said, uh, the union's compensation demands, which I don't necessarily know if well, that, yeah. you know, kind of, like, kind of funneling it into one aspect of it, but yeah. It sounds nice, but it's vague, and it's also fishy that they announced it to the public and not the workers. It seems like you would go to the faculty with this and then tell people that you've reached an agreement instead of just being like, hey, everybody, check out how cool we are. We're going to cave or whatever. Yeah, because the, th- the thing that's frustrating is because like, like eventually this offer was hammered out into the agreement that the, mm-hmm. the, t- the workers have, have met with the school. But the way that they announced it was just so clearly designed to undercut the union because mm-hmm. the idea of you tell the public before you tell the union, then if the union comes out and says, well, hey, wait a minute, we're not just going to automatically agree to this. We haven't had a chance to review it. And also maybe it doesn't meet some of the other requirements that we've asked for. Then in the public, the union looks like, you know, they're, they're, they're being unreasonable and they're not, they're not accepting the magnanimous offer of the school. So like, while it did end up ultimately being an offer that the union was able to hammer into something that they could agree to is still an underhanded way to announce it. So, mm-hmm. but, but the next day after taking 24 hours to review the proposal and to make final adjustments, the workers announced that they had reached a tentative agreement and would be ending the strike. And they specifically talked about the changes that were required in order to justify ending the strike. And so they said that in addition to agreeing to the workers' demands for fair pay, which were, of course, the the, the big thing that was the, the main cover of the strike, they also agreed to their requirements for health care. Uh, And so since the new agreement will meet the core demands that the workers have been fighting for during the strike, they felt that they were justified in, in, in ending the strike during the period of ratification. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the adjunct professors returned to work today, the day that we're recording Monday, December 12th and uh, ahead of a ratification vote this week. And so they put out a, and and this is why I don't think this is one of those cases where, you know, the the bargaining team undercuts the rank and file by saying, "Hey, we signed an agreement, the strike's over." <laughs> Partially just because of the way the union has has handled this strike in a very democratic manner, but also the end of their statement where they said, "Quote while the part-time faculty are saddened that the university's intransigence at the bargaining table forced them to leave their classrooms and take to the picket line, they emerge from their work strong, organized, and eager to face the struggles ahead. This tentative agreement is only the beginning, and the part-time faculty will continue to take power back from the new school's top executives and place it where it belongs, with the faculty and students without whom the university could not function. That's what I'm talking about. Vanguard Union, baby. <laughs> Go get <laughs> them. Right. Like... <laughs> Because <laughs> well, so many times, like when you have a strike that gets kind of like acrimonious like this and they you come to an agreement and the union wins a lot of big gains, mm-hmm. they put out a statement that's very like, you know, we're, we're sorry we had to go on strike. That sucks. But we've won this wonderful agreement and we're looking forward to getting back to work. No, and they so- straight up said labor peace is not in our interest. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, we'll do it again. Sleep yeah. with one eye open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll be watching the ratification vote and any further details that come out this week. But all signs really do point to a, a real victory for the, the adjunct professors at the new school. And, and, and I think it's in no, no small part due to the level of solidarity we saw both from full-time faculty with the adjuncts and especially here from the students. So I just think it continues to underline the necessity of building that community strength 
when you have strikes like these. And so hats off to the, the workers at the new school for their victory. Right. Yeah. Well, and continuing on with victories by student workers, the uh, Boston University grad student workers have won their union overwhelmingly. And by overwhelmingly, that is, I, it's a lot. Somehow an understatement. Four yeah. digits to two digits. <laughs> That's what the votes were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we did, uh, like, Dan mentioned we just did our episode on why academia is a scam, and I really encourage people to to check that out. Um, but, I mean, this week we got another school added to the growing list of unions at universities. On Wednesday, December 7th, the graduate student, the graduate student workers at Boston University voted in favor of unionizing with SEIU, adding to their growing list of unionized grad programs. They also did it in a truly overwhelming fashion by winning by a margin of 1,414 votes in favor to 28 against. (laughs) 28. And I want to know, wait, what is it? I wonder what it's like to be those 28 people. (laughs) Yeah, I I have to imagine all 28 of those people are legacy admissions. Sure. Well, it's like a small army voted in favor and a football team voted against. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yes, it's crazy. I mean, because 98% margin... I mean that's that's ridiculous no matter how big the union bargaining size is mm-hmm. but with thousands of workers like now that's immunity that's that's incredible so like uh, during the organizing campaign PhD student Greer Hamilton told Prism Reports quote like many people, the cost of living in Boston is becoming increasingly more difficult for us based on our stipends. I want to make sure that other grad students have access to a living wage that allows them to live and thrive in Boston. And and this was, of, is of course, one of the key demands that these workers intend to fight for now that they're a union, pointing out that – uh, PhD candidates at BU currently make about $36,000 a year, while because of how expensive the city is, uh, either the second or third most expensive as far as rent in the country, depending on uh, which numbers you look at, uh, a living wage in the city requires a salary of $46,000 a year. So putting them about ten grand under that. So right. This vote brings about 3,200 grad workers total into SEIU Local 509, which also represents about 20,000 other workers at BU and at other colleges in the city, such as Brandeis and Tufts. And so, yeah, the student workers plan to fight for improvements to wages and health care, but also for better housing and more support and protections for international students. And uh, SEIU Local 509 President Peter McKinnon said in a statement, quote, Boston University graduate student workers made their voices heard loud and clear that BU is a union campus. These workers deserve a say in their working conditions, and we are excited to bring the energy of this victory to the bargaining table, end quote. Hell yeah. Very, very cool. In another union victory. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I mean, kind of shifting gears a little bit, except for, you know, I mean, the UAW has been associated with so many different college unions, but the UAW is known for basically what it's named for, auto work. Uh, And we've talked a bunch about how uh, the UAW has kind of failed in many aspects to go into the new electric vehicle manufacturing sector, but they have seen one of their first major victories this week. Uh, so the UIW has been working to to unionize, you know, major uh, battery car, or I mean, electric car based plants for a while, and uh, and on Friday, December 9th, 
the workers at Ultium Cells Battery Factory in Warren, Ohio, voted unanimously, uh, or voted nearly unanimously, 710 to 16, to unionize with the UAW. The plant, a joint venture between GM and uh, LG, was the first plant outside of the internal production line of the big three automakers to to unionize and the one of the things that happened here which was kind of interesting is because the area that this happened in is so dominated by union labor that the company actually didn't fight as hard as we've seen in so many other things and it's so weird because we just expect the amount of repression to be so high that were out, kind of, kind of just blown away that the company was like, yeah, I don't even think we could win this. Like, even if we fought our hardest, we can't win this. So let's, you know, cut our losses. Well, I mean, when they vote by basically the same margin we saw in the last story, like a 97, <laughs> yeah. 98% margin, you think if the bosses have any level of awareness, they're just going to realize, like, if we could launch a union-busting campaign and lose, we will have spent so much money, and then we're still going to have to pay our workers more. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of that is likely due to the fact that this plant is just down the road from Lordstown. Which sure. If, if folks know any history of the UAW and, and auto manufacturing in the U.S. like that, Lordstown for decades was one of the biggest auto like manufacturing centers in the country. And it so is basically a, a city that is just a few really large buildings that has like two highway exits off the turnpike. It's crazy. Yeah, so like the the history of the UAW in this area is long. It's 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 so I yeah I think they may basically the company I think made a tactical decision where they're like look. Yeah, we don't want this union, but of all of our plants that we're setting up, this is probably the one we're least likely to win. So mm-hmm. let's just co- like not bother spending the money here. So and and it's not as if the workers at this plant are do not, you know, see a lot of potential wins from this either because like right now workers at the plant barely make 16.50 an hour while workers on UAW's contract with the big three automakers make at least $32 an hour. Although, of course, after years of concessions, there are tiers and exceptions, Mm -hmm. which hopefully will start to get hammered out next year with the big new uh, negotiations. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So obviously, you know, these workers, they'll still have to negotiate a contract, and maybe Ultium is is saving their anti-union money for that, uh, figuring that if they spend the money to to try and force a crappier contract on them, it'll be a more efficient use of their money. but they are now, of course, facing a much more militant executive board in the UAW following the victory of so many of the UAW Members United candidates for office. And, and, and UAW Members United candidate for union president, Sean Fain, who will be facing incumbent Ray Curry in a runoff in the next month or so, has actually specifically gone after the admin caucus during the campaign for being very slow to devote resources to organizing electric vehicle makers and indicated that he planned to be more aggressive in this field should he be elected, saying, quote, the whole system is put together to circumvent the UAW and any type of relationships with current members and employees. The first sign of that, our leadership should have went to war. Hell yeah. Yeah, Well, well, and, you know, judging from how the rest of the elections went in the UAW, I am cautiously but reasonably optimistic that Sean Fain will win. 
and also in speaking with the New York Times, these workers said that their primary concerns that led them to unionize were, unsurprisingly, low pay and lack safety standards at the plant. Dominic Giovannoni, who is a fabricator at the factory, told the New York Times that the job requires him to handle harsh chemicals, but he and his co-workers were never given proper safety training on how to handle them. Another worker, Ethan Serjanovic, agreed, saying that when workers have raised safety issues to management, that it, quote, feels like it lands on deaf ears. This lines up with the safety issues raised by workers at another electric car company, Rivian, and I'm sure would line up with the safety issues raised by workers at another electric car company, <laughs> Tesla, if they weren't yeah. fired on the spot by an insane South, South African man. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the <laughs> the concerns over safety are very, very well highlighted by the next little piece of information, because Ultium pointed reporters to QR codes around the factory, implying that the business considers these to be a substitute for proper training that's right you're supposed to hold up your phone scan a qr code watch a little video and then you're a fucking expert there's no actual like experts who come in and like hey these are the aspects of the job that are dangerous you know and this this machine is a little bit quirky so you got to make sure that this or that or whatever and we should Make sure to, you know, get this fixed or whatever. No, you just like you have this idealized version of how the machine works with a tiny little QR code on your phone, which I'm surprised that they even let their workers have phones because this seems like the kind of company that would restrict phone access right. while on the floor. Well, but, and also like you don't have to put up a QR code. You need to do the training and then yes. you need to instead of putting up the QR code, put up a poster or something that has all the information on the training on it just to reiterate and then like because a qr code i'm sorry that's not even a proper replacement for a menu at a restaurant much Mm -hmm. less a fucking safety program yeah absolutely so uh i mean look we're obviously very happy for these workers to to now you know finally have their union to be joining the uaw especially at this time where we're excited about the direction the uaw is going in but i do think uh that we i don't think that this case is necessarily going to be emblematic of what we're going to see mm-hmm. at attempts to unionize other plants because many of the other major battery plants being built for electric vehicles are like so much of U.S. manufacturing being built in the South and the Sun Belt specifically because of these regions' long history of of anti-unionism, of right-to-work laws, politicians openly bragging about the region's low union density. Uh, so, you know, there's plants being built in places like Tennessee and, and just all over the South, specifically with the goal of cheaper labor. So I imagine that the, the fights to unionize those plants when they're complete and getting ready to open will likely be a much more uphill battle, which is why it's, you know, a perfect timing for a slate of leaders in the union to be coming into power who have specifically talked about their plans to be more aggressive in organizing electric vehicle production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then to move to our next story, we're going to be seeing the very first test of Microsoft's neutrality policy where uh, where QA testers at a company called ZeniMax, which is part of Microsoft, have filed for their union election. 
Right. So a few months ago, we saw Microsoft announce that they'd reached a neutrality agreement with the CWA with regard to their planned merger with Activision Blizzard, pledging that if an acquisition goes through, they would not interfere with their workers' rights to form a union. And so even though that acquisition has not gone through, we are seeing that first test, as Lena said. So on Monday, December 5th, these workers at ZeniMax announced their plans to organize a union amongst 300 QA testers. And the union would cover QA workers across multiple ZeniMax studios, including Bethesda. Bethesda, makers of Fallout and the Elder Scrolls. If successful, this union would be by far the largest union in the U.S. video game industry. So per Microsoft's agreement to remain neutral, the workers are going through a process similar to a card check. Workers can sign a card by indicating their desire to form a union and can use an electronic platform deployed on Friday, December 2nd to debate the issue, quote, anonymously. Uh, While obviously card check is a much fairer process than the typical interference-filled NLRB election, It's hard to believe that any electronic platform set up as part of such an agreement, especially by a tech giant like Microsoft, could ever be truly anonymous. Yeah, I mean, that part's that's an interesting fold to put in there Uh after you're like, yeah, we'll recognize card check. But if you want to talk about it, here's this totally anonymous board you can talk about it on that we made. Then don't worry about us reading it and figuring out who everybody who said or, negative things about us is. I really <laughs> feel like what it allows like management to do is to go in there as one of the anonymous people to be like, you know, I just got a few questions. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just think that there's, you know, if we, we see this or that, you know, like it really the anonymous part of it, it needs to be auditable. And I, I mean, I imagine that in a tech company like this it'll be very difficult to audit it's like a you know a pri- a private company setting up their own their own vote system right well and, and it's also it's it's yeah. also int- it's sorry it's it's also interesting that this neutrality agreement is kind of in response to this acquisition slash merger because it's not like activision Blizzard doesn't have its own problems. I just read a really long article about how the Diablo 4 team are basically unanimously like, fuck this, we hate working here. Um, yeah. Please stop changing the goalposts on us when we're weeks from the deadline. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so this will this is certainly going to be an interesting one to watch. I've actually seen some places when the story came out just tell it as if Microsoft had already voluntarily recognized the union. And I'm mm. like, that, not quite. I'm I'm like, it, it, look, card check is it, look, card check is good. It's it's a better, much better process than the the current existing NLRB election process. And so far, everything about this does seem like it's more likely that Zenimax workers will be able to unionize, seeing far far less oppression in the process and retaliation from their bosses than we've seen, say, at various parts of Activision Blizzard, like sure. Activ- like a uh, Blizzard Albany, who just finally won theirs despite months of stupid pointless legal appeals from activision to try and negate their election so uh, i mean we'll see how this plays out uh so far basically the workers at zenimax have said that that what has pushed them to unionize are shocker the same conditions we've seen qa workers face really all over the industry low pay and overwork specifically around the phenomenon of crunch which is for folks who are not 
familiar with the gaming industry, uh, crunches the practice of intensified labor and extremely long hours at a video game company right before the game's release. Basically, as problems crop up before the game can be issued, the company rushes to finish all of those things to hit a release deadline. And rather than, you know, bringing in more labor, Mm -hmm. it's just, oh, no, no, all our existing workers have to just basically sleep at the office, which I know sounds like an exaggeration, but is actually probably not. not not actually telling about how bad the conditions are. Oh, talk to anybody who's worked in the games industry. Sleeping at the office is considered like expected sometimes during yeah. crunch work. It's very it's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, so in addition, obviously, to dealing with crunch and, and, and wanting to get better wages, the workers are also looking for more standardized policies around working from home, as well as allocation of training and ensuring a open path for career advancement, which is something that QA workers often don't see. Uh, and, and so, like, so far, it looks as though this this is on the path towards Microsoft voluntarily recognizing the workers after a majority of them sign cards, which, hey, that's great. But I just wanted to point out one thing about this is that the fact that this is not covered by active, their uh, neutrality agreement with the CWA because ZeniMax workers are already part of Microsoft, they're not part of Activision Blizzard, I think is, is an indication of exactly what the purpose of the neutrality agreement is, which is to try and get that acquisition approved. And I, and, and I think we should point out that after signing that neutrality agreement, CWA did come out in favor of Microsoft acquiring Activision Blizzard, mm. which uh, I'm personally a bit wary of. I Look, I, I, I do like the idea of a company making it easier for a union to unionize, but I also don't think we should have naive illusions about the idea that Microsoft is somehow a pro-labor company and, or the fact that these sorts of giant acquisitions often come with layoffs because yeah. of supposed redundancies and 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 i don't unless cwa has gotten some sort of written guarantee that that's not going to happen uh i'm not really sure that endorsing this sort of a merger is necessarily a great idea especially when even the ftc the federal trade commission uh has said that it's not a good idea they they filed a lawsuit aiming to block the merger on antitrust grounds last thursday so uh i think it'll be interesting to watch if after this arrangement with ZeniMax, if that merger gets blocked or dragged out because of FTC opposition, if Microsoft continues to be quite so magnanimous towards its workers, if it looks like the government's not going to just rubber stamp their acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Right. Well, and also, like, uh, it's it's just bad when giant companies do mergers and form oligopolies. <laughs> like, yeah. you ever get into an elevator and see Tyson Krupp? Two of the most evil companies in the world, but if you live in America, you just see them on an elevator. Yeah. Well, then I guess speaking of oligopolies, we can move to our next story, which is about the wonderful, magical company Disney. Everybody's favorite, uh, you know, company that really no, I I can't keep that one up. Uh, I mean, so so Disney World. You know, they call themselves the happiest place on earth, but when you actually look at the conditions for the workers, they're very, very poor. I mean, a lot of the workers make from 10 to $15 an hour, and this is in, like, Orlando, Florida, where the living wage would would be so much higher than that. Yeah. Well, and they, they're the single, they're the largest single location employer in the entire country. They have 70,000 employees there, which is larger than most towns. 
<laughs> yeah. in the country, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. And they brought in $3.6 billion in profits last year. And billion with a B is really important because like, I know you see a lot of millions and you're like, whatever businesses do millions all the time. A billion, that's, that's 3,000 million dollars. That's and, and crazy. And that's just... That's just Disney's parks division. Right. That's none of their media arm. That's not <laughs> licensing. Yeah, that's not records. Yeah. That's not merch. Yeah. I can't imagine taking like $70 tickets for like all day and getting paid 10 or $15 an hour when the, you know the amount of profit that you're bringing in with every single minute that you work is enough to pay your salary. Right. And so only about 42,000 of these 70,000 workers are included in a coalition of six unions called the Services Trades Council Union. And the union's previous contract, which just expired this last October, raised the workers' minimum wage from $10 to 15 But with the cost of living exploding since the start of the pandemic, this is still pretty far from a living wage. So workers have called for wage increases to $20 an hour to help make ends meet. And the ST CCU is demanding an immediate increase for the lowest paid workers to $18 an hour, raising that to over 20 by the end of the contract. So far, Disney has balked at this, wanting to only raise wages by $1 a year over the life of the five-year contract. That's disgraceful. And workers say they can't wait that long. And they're right. So a living wage in the Orlando area for one person with no kids is already above $18 an hour. And for families with kids, it is over 20. And we also saw some statistics that were released by Unite Here Local 737 revealing how difficult these low wages make these workers' lives. A person reporting in deadline, the union said 69% struggled to pay their rent in the last year. 62% said they had no savings at all. And nearly half said they skipped meals because they could not afford the price of food. Orlando average rent has risen 23% in the last year alone. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's some, those are some stark statistics mm-hmm. like those that that reminds me when we were talking about the the strike at king supers mm-hmm. earlier this year where there was the report by the economic policy institute on just how horrible the wages are at kroger and its various subsidiary grocery stores and how that makes so many of their workers you know go hungry barely be able to pay rent have to live out of their cars and, and again this is disney one of the most valuable companies in the world they control like half of the media in this country and, and yet it, uh, i mean they're paying these workers like again they, there was a worker example in this story and this is mostly coming out of a, a story in the guardian from michael sonato uh, who great reporter definitely if if you're looking for good labor reporters to follow he's a good one um so he he interviewed this worker Earl Penson who's a food handler at the park uh, he used to work as an electrician but had trouble finding work and found work at, at the park and he's worked there for over a decade but only makes fifteen fifty an hour which he can't get by on so he has to take a second job picking up basically like odd jobs like style electrician work and saying quote. We are grossly, grossly underpaid for the hours that we work and all the heavy lifting. It's like warehouse and driver work. A lot of us have the same story in not being able to afford the cost of living on the pay that we make. A lot of Disney workers are barely squeaking by. You have workers with families sleeping in their car, end quote. And it's just like... I know I, I, I point out that it's like, I can't believe that a company that has this much money is treating their workers this way, but it's outrageous, but 
it's also not a coincidence. Like the reason Disney is so rich is the fact that they screw over their workers so hard in the same way that the reason Kroger is the biggest chain in in the country is that they keep their their labor costs, quote unquote, AKA they pay their workers dog shit. So, and it's clearly despite Disney's image again, as the happiest place on earth, they're screwing their workers over just as much. You have again, 70,000 workers at this park and you have all half of over half of them, no savings, can't pay the rent, may have to live in their car. Like this is absurd. It is, it is a, a nonsense economic system that it's like, you you don't even have to explain the exploitation to people. You can just see it. Like it's so obvious. And and I mean, and in addition to the incredibly low pay, the the workers get basically no benefits. Like one housekeeping worker told Michael Sonato, their family recently had a newborn child. They received no paid leave at all. They had to go right back to work immediately. And this is and like that's a situation that's also really common around the country. And so many of these workers basically get essentially no health care. They get this like token health care plan that's basically like one of the awful ACA plans. Uh, and, and, and that's pretty much it. They basically get no retirement benefits, no other benefits. So, uh, yeah, I, and I, I really appreciate it. Like, there were some good signs that workers were holding in a, at a protest on November 30th just outside Disney World that just read, quote, magic doesn't pay the bills. It's true. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, I mean, this is really gross. And if you happen to live in Florida, uh, there may be, you know, some more uh, protests and potentially a strike from 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 these unions. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for possibilities. For I'd love to see Disney on strike. Yeah. I mean, there's some great pictures from back in, I want to say, the 40s or 50s of Disney, I think, animators on strike where they brought, like, a guillotine <laughs> to, to the picket line. I was like, yeah, we need yeah. More that energy. Get his ass. Hell, Walt was still yeah. alive back then. You could threaten him directly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, and with every single one of our episodes over the past year, we will be talking about Starbucks again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one really celebrating the fact that it has been an actual year since the beginning of the first unionizing efforts at Starbucks. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is wild to consider that in just one year... <laughs> The Starbucks Workers United movement has gone from zero unionized stores to unionizing over 270 locations covering over 7,000 workers. Like, it's in- incredibly impressive. And, yeah, so it, to, in celebration of that, there were rallies held across the country at 10 stores in New York City, Chicago, L.A., Boston, D.C., Pittsburgh, Seattle, Atlanta, San Antonio, and, of course, the place they all got started in Buffalo. And, and, and workers were joined at these rallies by contingents from all sorts of different unions in the labor movement, the AFA, the AFT, the NEA, LIUNA, IBEW. I, honestly, it's, just, it's like I think every major union that I follow on Twitter was posting pictures of their members showing up to these in solidarity, which that rules. Like we, more of that, please. Like that's the sort of uh, labor solidarity we need to be building. Like it's great to see it here where it's, it's very needed. But like, 
I think it, we we really want to see that all over. Right. Well, and we haven't just seen, you know, victory rallies. We've also seen the militancy continue with strikes in response to Starbucks unrelenting union busting campaign. So on Monday, December 5th, workers at the 29th and Willamette location in Eugene, Oregon, went on strike after marching on the boss to air their grievances. Workers are fighting abuse of the company's dress code policy, abusive, misogynist and transphobic behavior from management and health code violations that the company refuses to fix, which is uh, a shockingly common theme that we've seen. And so I, these are all shockingly common themes we've seen uh, within Starbucks. And in launching this strike, one worker reading their reasons for striking to the boss said, quote, we are done, done with being misgendered by you at a job where we get that regularly from our customers. Starbucks is a job some of us picked when we came out because we thought we'd be safe until you showed up. Our coworkers cared about us, end quote, which is like... Yeah. I mean, that gets straight to the point, doesn't it? <laughs> I watched that. Uh, there's actually a video of that confrontation, and it is really, really great. And I, I just, it ma- makes me wish that, uh, that that could have happened at the store that I was in because the transphobia. I mean, like, my boss published people's dead names on a public notice one time. Mm-hmm. Like, Oof, it's disgusting. That's awful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a really powerful video, and, and 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 that's the sort of thing that a movement that has this level of national solidarity can give people the confidence to do, and that's why we're so supportive of Starbucks Workers United. And and so like, in addition, we we got news just today, the the twelfth, that the workers at the New York City Roastery were ending their forty six day long strike. Uh, And in their announcement, they pointed out all the many victories that they have won over the course of their strike, including winning weekly cleaning of their ice machines at at not just the New York City location, but all the roastery locations in the country, which I believe is only three. But still, um, they're some of the biggest stores and most prominent ones in the country. They also won inspections paid for by the company to ensure the end of the bed bug infestation that had been going on at the site. They won the formation of a worker-run health and safety committee to hold the store accountable to actually maintaining these sorts of inspections and level of cleanliness and an agreement by the company to begin bargaining with the union for the store's contract tomorrow. Uh, as of, Or actually, I guess, if you're listening to this uh, today, Tuesday, December 13th. So uh, that's a lot of wins for for one store on on that strike. So kudos to the workers at the roastery for holding strong. Absolutely. And then on Monday, I guess today for us, or yesterday for you, uh, the NLRB (laughs) issued more charges against Starbucks. This time in Colorado, the NLRB charged Starbucks with illegally firing a pro-union leader for organizing, holding captive audience meetings, withholding wage increases, threatening not to bargain, threatening to withhold digital tips, taking down union literature, and prohibiting union clothing, and interrogating workers about about their position on the union just like literally the list they did it all yeah (laughs) they just put like all of the possible violations of the wagner act up on a dartboard and just kept throwing until they hit every one of them 
Yeah, I mean, these charges will be evaluated by an administrative law judge, and the board is seeking like an immediate. The board is seeking an immediate reinstatement of the fired organizer with back pay, which I think is a really a really important detail that I think sometimes gets overlooked. Uh, that back pay, I mean, there needs to be a at least some level of punishment for this sort of retaliation against union organizer. I think you should get and, double back pay. I think it should be two x. Yeah, actually, you know what? New demand just dropped. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, we also have seen another victory uh, where on Wednesday, December 7th, workers at Willow and Figgison? Figgison? Finkston. Finkston. Willow and oh, Finkston yeah. store in Glenview, Illinois, won their election unanimously 18 to 0. Hell yeah. Way to fucking yeah. get it, Willow and Finkston. Good job. <laughs> we love to see it. <laughs> what do you love to see? Oh, I love to see the meme review. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, I like this. Our first, first meme this week, uh, pretty much just a classic one for any week. Uh, you've got. <laughs> So this is a modification of the goose getting mad at guy for wearing a goose filled jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it starts out with your 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 standard memeified capitalist in the first panel of we get rich through hard work, and then back into the normal uh, goose format with the goose go asking whose hard work, and then with chasing squinty <laughs> eyes. <laughs> whose hard work? Mother? Goose has this uh, these squinty eyes, like really, really credulous or to the to the capitalist. Yeah, and then chasing him with whose hard work, motherfucker. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's like honestly the thing that that most reminded me of is like the the like when Biden keeps tweeting out about how like workers have gotten wages that exceed inflation and i'm just like what workers yeah who yeah who are you talking about list them yeah. Sp- be specific uh, yeah. <laughs> well and uh, and our next one since we we talked about uh electric car production and specifically batteries this is pretty on point so you have ava morales who says hey elon want to hear a joke and elon musk is there and he says yeah sure so ava says lithium and then Elon goes, I don't get it. And Ava just says, that's right, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like this one. God is I, 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 love, I love Latin American countries standing up to U.S. imperialism. Yeah, well, that's it's right. really hard for them to do. We did just stage that coup in Peru and a kind of soft coup in Argentina as well. The OAS stays pretty busy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... We, of course, though, you know, there's been so many good memes coming out of and one of the few good things to come out of Biden screwing over the rail workers has been the, the memes that have come out of it. And so couldn't just have them in last week's episode. So we've got a few more <laughs> for this one. So our next one is the classic screen cap from the movie Parasite, uh, which if you haven't seen it, check it out. Great it's a good movie. movie. <laughs> good film um, where you've got the the disgruntled working class uh car driver like just like looking into the 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 camera like uh, while the the rich person that he's driving around in the back is on her phone and then it's captioned with her speaking i'm so glad there isn't going to be a strike that would have ruined christmas 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can just feel the pain in this guy's face. Like, that every, I mean, even like in the movie, but also just like in almost every single rendition of, of that screen cap. And this one being really, really apt for our current situation. Yeah, well, and I mean, just you just go straight back to the goose meme. You're like, ruined Christmas for who? For who, motherfucker? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I guess speaking of Joe Biden, our next one is uh, one of his face and a classic thing that he has said, but the top text on this one is, when those uppity workers start asking for just a better crumb of better conditions, uh, and then he, this is the classic Joe Biden saying, will you shut up, man, or whatever he, he said, and it's like, I don't know. Joe Biden is so infuriating. Even his zingers suck. Yeah, I feel like I wanted this to be funny, but then as I was saying it, it just became depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That one is like, it's less like creating black comedy about the meme, about like reality and just describing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, in that same vein, we've got our last one. With it, this is uh, we've used this. This is that like three panel format that we've used yeah. a bunch, mm-hmm. where it's it, the base uh, structure for it is like uh, don't is ask never a ask a woman age. her age, yeah. a man his salary, and then it's the third one is the meme option, yeah, or, but or this, an, uh, a blonde Argentinian what their German parents were doing in forty five, <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> right, right. But so this one is 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 never ask a railroad CEO why they're always short staffed. A railroader, the last time they saw their family, or, and now the bottom panel has been replaced by a picture of Joe Biden, pro labor capitalists, why they never choose labor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's right there in the name, isn't it? Capitalists? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Important to understand that pro labor capitalist is an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah. does, oh, I'm does a, not. I'm exist. a pro labor capitalist. I'm dry water. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a pro coal member of the Green Party. I'm cold <laughs> heat. You know, like <laughs> shut up. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners because it, you are the reason why we do the show. And if you'd like to support us as a listener, because we are an entirely listener-supported show, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. And uh, we also you also get access to all of our bonus content. We just did that interview on why academia is a scam. And that's a really, really interesting piece to check out. If you uh, would like to hang out with us or learn more, follow news that doesn't necessarily make it into the episode, jump in the Discord. There is always things going on in there. You can also write us a review pretty much anywhere. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can listen to the Beat Me Bledis, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.